Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the hatred spewing from House MAGA Republicans like Eli Crane complaining about coloured people and Congressman Perry viciously attacking Biden's climate envoy John Kerry and explore the origins of this hatred, how it has entered the mainstream and what can be done to restore civility and decency. Joining us is Wendy Veer, the president and co-founder of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism, where her work focuses on the effects of extremism on our society, systemic racism, economic inequality, immigration, criminal justice reform, and LGBTQ rights. Previously, she was the chief communications and development officer at the Southern Poverty Law Center. Then we'll examine the hate-filled amendments to the National Defense Authorization Act inserted into the must-pass NDAA by House MAGA Republicans and passed in a bill that Speaker McCarthy hailed as stopping wokeism in the military, even though it is dead on arrival in the Senate. Joining us is Lawrence Korb, who is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and a senior advisor to the Center for Defense Information. He served as Assistant Secretary of Defense, where he dealt with manpower and readiness, and is the author of A New National Security Strategy in an Age of Terrorists, Tyrants, and Weapons of Mass Destruction. Then finally, we'll look into the largest dual union strike in the entertainment industry since 1960, with SAG-AFTRA joining the Writers Guild, who are already on strike and assess the impact this strike will have on the broader labor movement with ongoing labor struggles with Amazon, Starbucks, UPS and Trader Joe's, etc. Joining us is Lane Windham, Associate Director of Georgetown University's Kelmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor, and the Co-Director of Will Empower, that's Women Innovating Labor Leadership. She is the author of Knocking on Labor's Door, Union Organizing in the 1970s, and the roots of a new economic divide. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, background briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now is Wendy Veer, who's the president and co-founder of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism, where her work focuses on the effects of extremism on our society, systemic racism, economic inequality, immigration, criminal justice reform, and LGBTQ rights. Previously, she was the chief communications and development officer at the Southern Poverty Law Center. Welcome to Background Briefing, Wendy Veer. Thank you, Ian. It's good to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Wendy. And Just in the last week in the House, we witnessed such outbursts of hatred coming from these MAGA Republican House Congress people. And of course, Representative Eli Crane, who Trump supported, he used the phrase, colored people. We haven't heard that since the 1950s. They they struck it from the congressional record. But still, he is who he is. And one of the more shocking examples of just absolutely pure hatred came from Representative Scott Perry, Republican of Pennsylvania, who was grilling Senator Kerry, who after all was, you know, the Democrats presidential candidate in two thousand four and Secretary of State. It wasn't so much it was disrespectful, it was outright alarming the way he attacked him with such venom. And Perry was holding up these charts claiming he had proof that there was no such thing as global warming and Kerry's just trying to say, well, you know, 95% of the countries in the world recognize it's a fact and they're trying to do something about it. Then Perry says, they're grifters, like you are, sir. And then there's a huge gasp from uh, both sides of the aisle, like, oh, God, did we just hear that? But the thing is that this is happening. And I can give you more examples of not just 
hatred spewing from these ragged Republicans, but also incredible stupidity. But where is it coming from, Wendy? You study hate and extremism. Where is it coming from? How has it emerged with such fury? Well, I think that the way we describe it is that the cordon sanitaire, you know, the line that people used to refuse to cross, the line that wasn't, you know, that if you crossed it, then there were serious consequences. That line has virtually been erased. So you're left with people like Perry and Matt Gates, who said who said what he did to uh, Christopher Ray the other day. This just offensive and I'm, I'm struggling for words <laughs> because it is it's so beyond the pale that that these people who are meant to be leaders of our country are willing to set up such a terrible example for the constituents that they have and to be so disrespectful of another person never mind whether it's a republican or a democrat just a person right and 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 this and the and the environment is such that they are getting away with it there are no consequences no real consequences for being willing to cross this line and it's going to absolutely take those conservatives and let me say i do not think that all conservatives or all republicans are by any means racist or want to hurt people in the country but it's going to have to be them that stand up and make it stop along with the more progressive folks but the right wing is very clear on its message to white people and trump of course has activated the right wing and brought them back into the mainstream and their message is that the left looks down on you the system is rigged against you and the takers, meaning minorities, are getting everything while you struggle. So where is the message from the left to white people to counteract this surge of hatred? I don't, I don't know. I, I think that we need greater leadership in, in standing up and being as relentless as the uh, haters are. Not in the same way, but not not backing down, not accepting these unacceptable statements. For example, the amendments on the National Defense Authorization Act. They're some of the most hateful things you could possibly see. And some of them didn't get through, but many did. And it's going to create a situation where the Authorization Act is dead in the water once it gets to the Senate. And so where is the fight? What are we going to see? Where are the progressives or Democrats in this case going to take their stand and draw their line and say no more? We're not using our troops to um, as, a, as a weapon in furthering these cultural wars. Well, the strategy on the right has clearly changed. They used to use kind of dog whistle coded racist messages, but now it's all been morphed into the woke agenda. And of course, you've got Governor DeSantis pushing that. And But then in the NDAA, after it passed that House, McCarthy gets up there and, and talks about how we don't want to turn the military into Disney, whatever the hell that means. And uh, we're, you know, we don't want the woke agenda in the in the military. So they, that's the new sort of grab bag term to basically authorize racism and demonization of gay and lesbian people and other social minorities along with people of color. I agree with you. It is, it is outrageous that this is what we're dealing with, but this is that line I was talking about you know, several years ago, and, I, and and don't misunderstand me, in no, in no world do I think that the United States had progressed as far as it needed to go in protection of civil and human rights, but there had been progression, and now we're just seeing this never-ending backsliding, and it's that line, that cordon, sanitaire, the cordon sanitaire, the thing that that sort of like all people wreck or all political uh, parties or activists recognize that you couldn't cross this line and that line has been erased. And, and this is what 
and and I know it seems sort of obvious, but you have to say it over and over again so that people will start to get the message. You can go this far, but no farther. And who is going to stop them from going farther? The fact that Eli Crane had his words stricken from the congressional record, I mean, that is some sort of, you know, consequence, but really not, <laughs> not enough. I mean, there should be something like a censure so that people are especially our elected representatives who get up there and who are running their mouths, that they know that they can't say things like that. But in the context of saying colored people, which is completely unacceptable, he was saying that our military was never meant to be inclusive. So, you know, while it's possible that a person could misspeak and instead of saying people of color, there is no question as to what he meant and what he really believes, given the context in which he was speaking and the amendment that he was putting forth that is basically not allowing any committees to not even, it, it specifically says no committees may be formed that are intended to address race, sexual orientation, you know, et cetera. And he was, he was piling onto that. And so there's no question. And so is, is it having his words stricken? I mean, that's sort of like, okay, but I'd rather have him not stricken and have him censured, right? Uh -huh. to, to, to put a real message out there. Well, it seems as if it all started with Donald Trump when he started the Bertha campaign, where he gave permission to people to come out from under a rock and express their racism and racist views openly by this terrible attack on Obama not being an American and being a Kenyan and all this kind of garbage. And it seems to have now evolved. I mean, by the way, Crane was endorsed by Trump and championed by him. And also Turberville in the Senate. He was yes. also chosen by Trump and, and promoted by Trump. So this other woman down in Florida, this Congresswoman Luna, is completely stupid. I mean, seriously stupid, like Turberville. They're really dumb and dangerously dumb. She was just the other day in the House saying, you can't have foreign aid because it's not in the Constitution. I mean, that's the scary part. It's not that they're just full of hate and anger. They're also unbelievably stupid. And these are the kind of people that Trump obviously wants to take over the House and Senate. God help us if he gets reelected. I I couldn't agree more, Ian. And I, and I think you're right. If we... It's so hard to sort of pinpoint when this tide turned, but I do think it was around the time that Trump um, started promoting that birther conspiracy theory. That is so racist as to be unbelievable. And then uh, the Tea Party, right, in reaction to Obama's election. And it has been a, a backslide ever since. And Trump has been a, if not the primary figure. All he did was give per people permission to say and do probably what they were thinking already. And that's that line. I go back to that court on sanitaire. And he, it, at this point, whether or not Trump, I mean, it, I think it would be absolutely catastrophic if he was in office again. But that, but because that line has been erased, you have a Ron DeSantis who openly spread such bigotry against the LGBTQ community, who is who has such authoritarian leanings, um, who uses government as a weapon. You, you know, that's the thing we have to worry about is how where this ends up, because the spread of hate and demonization and dehumanizing language, it leads to real violence and it leads to authoritarian governments. And so to think that you can talk, that you can brush it off or ignore it, I think it's foolish in the extreme. We, it has to be addressed every time we hear it. But there's obviously a lot of, you know, hand-wringing among the liberal elites and the centrists of the Democratic Party. And, but the point is that they're avoiding talking about race, while the right wing is very clear in its message to white people and it's stirring them up and bringing them out from under the woodwork and letting them spew their hatred 
openly, and now they have their representative in the House and Senate spewing hatred openly. So this strategy on the part of white liberals to avoid talking about race, it's clearly not working. Well, I agree, and I don't, I don't know that it's only not talking about race. I think that they do. I think that there is a vibrant discussion about racial justice in this country, but it is being attacked effectively from the right. And what I think we, sh- I mean, what I would like to see is less hand wringing, <laughs> as you say, and more definitive action and and uh, standing your ground on the position and recognizing that there is no compromise, there is no discussion with somebody who thinks that black people are lazy and violent or that LGBTQ people are, are an abomination. You, there is no discussion with these folks. And, to, and that's one reason why I was so happy that both Secretary Austin and the president had said, you know, had been up to a couple of days ago, had refused to speak again with Tommy Tuberville because it doesn't warrant discussion, right? They had they had said what it's going to be, and it's up, in, in my view, it's up to the Republicans, his fellow Republicans, to continue to um, put pressure on him. And then because they wouldn't, now you had the most extreme elements of the party get uh, an amendment onto the NDAA saying that no no funds will be used for um, it's really the furtherance of abortion services it's, the taxpayer dollars don't pay for abortions what this what the what the government pays for the Department of Defense pays for is if a military member or spouse has to travel outside the state those expenses they are allowed days off it is not that they're handed a check to go get an abortion and so it's been misrepresented entire, misrepresented entirely in the discussion. Where there is an opening, the extreme right will walk in. They will take advantage of that opening. And so we need to stand up. Well, Wendy Vera, I thank you very much for joining us. I thank you. You have a great weekend. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Wendy Veer, who's the president and co-founder of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism, where her work focuses on the effects of extremism on our society, systemic racism, economic inequality, immigration, criminal justice reform, and LGBTQ rights. And Previously, she was the chief communications and development officer at the Southern Poverty Law Center. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining the hate-filled amendments to the National Defense Authorization Act inserted into the must-pass NDAA by House MAGA Republicans. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Lawrence Corb, who was a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and a senior advisor to the Center for Defense Information. He served as Assistant Secretary of Defense and is the author of A New National Security Strategy in an Age of Terrorists, Tyrants, and Weapons of Mass Destruction. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lawrence Corb. Good to be with you again. Well, thanks for joining us, Larry. And what do you make of the the Republicans piling on all kinds of amendments to the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, which is always passed on a bipartisan basis, uh, you know, with just literally nobody questioning how much money gets thrown at the Pentagon. And this one of the, the rarest examples where Democrats and Republicans all vote in lockstep in this very polarized and, and divided polity that we have. But this time around, the MAGA Republicans loaded a whole bunch of culture war stuff into the bill, basically going after abortion policy, transgender health care, and targeting diversity and inclusion programs. So it's almost like the Republicans 
want to have the Confederate Army. They don't want women and minorities. What kind of vision is it when you when you got McCarthy talking about wokeness? Uh, and wokeness, of course, is a code for blacks and minorities. How does it strike you, having been in the, in the Pentagon in charge of manpower? Well, you got two problems with it. <laughs> Number one, <clears throat> this bill usually just takes a look at defense issues. You know, how many nuclear weapons you want? Do you want to retire ships? You want to build, you know, new ones? You know, do you want to buy tanks? I mean, those are usually the issues that are debated. And the interesting thing is when this came out of the committee, it was 58 to 1 just with those issues. Then, of course, it got to the floor and you had a lot of, you know, the Freedom Caucus uh, members or some people call them MAGA Republicans who had a lot of other issues and wanted to use this as a vehicle to push those issues because they know this is something that has to be passed. If it's not passed by the end of the fiscal year, then basically you're going to go back and do what you were doing the year before. You can't start any you know, new, uh, new programs and you can't have an appropriation unless you get the authorization. So there'd be, you know, no money. And McCarthy had to let them put this in because he's only got a three-fold majority to stay a speaker. And so he put all these amendments in and was able to squeak it through. The interesting thing is you had four Republicans voted against it, but four Democrats voted for it. That put it over the top uh, to get uh, this bill. You've got to hope that when the Senate passes, which will be much more traditional uh, bill, that in the conference committee, they'll drop out most of these things that have nothing to do with national defense and, in fact, can actually undermine national security. Well, but that's where I don't understand when I say it's as though these angry white men in the Republican caucus, particularly uh, the Freedom Caucus, what kind of vision they have for America and for the American military. It's almost like they want the Confederate Army to come back because one of the problems that the military is, is, has now is they're struggling with the worst recruitment numbers in recent history. The Army had a shortfall of 25% enlistments in last fiscal years, along with the Marines, Navy, and the Air Force. They barely made their quotas, and apparently this year it's even worse. So if you're going to beat up on women and minorities and shut the door on them, you're going to have a hell of a time filling up the ranks. No doubt about it. You know, the provision right now, the Pentagon, after the Dodds decision, which, uh, you know, took said the, uh, the federal right to abortion was taken away, basically said, look, if you're at a base and the state does not allow abortion, you can go to another state and we'll pay you your your way there because basically, you know, this is normally you'd be able to get this done right in the, you know, where you were stationed. And since so many of our bases are in the, in the South, you got a, that's an awful lot of uh, issues you have to deal with. Well, you take away this, it's going to undermine readiness because for two reasons. One, you mentioned women are not going to join, but those that are in are not going to stay because they won't be able to ha take control of their own destiny. So what are the diversity programs that they object to? They, McCarthy said, you know, it's like a, we don't want to turn the military into Disney. I don't know what he meant by that. But he said, you know, getting rid of all these woke uh, military programs. Well, what, right, what are the diversity programs? Well, right now, the military has what they call DEI, diversity, equity and inclusion that basically they instruct the troops on, you know, in terms of these men and women, you know, we all come from different backgrounds, we have different beliefs, and we have to respect that because we gotta fight together, and that's the, the key thing. They don't want any of that training anymore. Uh, they uh, basically don't even want the military schools to talk about, you know, the problems we've had in this country where we have been, you know, adopted racist policies, you know, for a, a period of, of time. They don't want any of that included in any of the, the history 
you know, courses that uh, people would take or the, the background. So basically what they want is make believe none of this happened. Make believe today we all love each other regardless of race, creed, color, sex, gender, uh, everything like that. They're also, in addition to not allowing women to, uh, you know, get travel out of state to get abortions that they would pay for, uh, they don't want to provide medical care to transgender people. Well, you've got, you know, I would say, uh, you know, a significant number. I remember I pushed that, you know, to allow uh, transgender people to come in and stay in and 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 basically given what you said, well, you've already got a recruitment problem, it's going to get worse. So the votes were 221 to 213, and the other vote on the abortion ban and gender-affirming surgeries and hormone treatment was 222 to 211. Who are the four Democrats that voted with the Republicans? Do you, do you know, Larry? Well, I mean, I, I did know their name. I just know there were four I mean, uh, I could look that up, but uh, basically they were not anybody who would be a household, uh, you know, word. Right. So, but the other key vote, which I think obviously had very different outcome, the House voted 341 to 89 and 358 to 70 to defeat these proposals to cut off funding for Ukraine. So that's definitely a sign that at least there's some bipartisanship on supporting Ukraine, right? Yeah, no doubt about it. There is a significant number of Republicans. Again, you can call them Freedom Caucus or MAGA Republicans who are opposed to Ukraine. Basically, they're saying, we got problems here at home. Let's take care of them. Let's worry about China and let the Europeans, you know, uh, handle this. But I do think, you, you know, that that failed and that was key. Because the last thing you need, given this war, is for Putin to think, oh, if I can hang on long enough and the Republicans come back, then I'll be fine. So this bill then authorizes $886 billion for national defense with a 5.2% pay increase for service members. So when it goes to the Senate and into conference where they try and strip out this culture war stuff that the MAGA Republicans foisted on the bill. Is there a chance that the debate will be about, you know, not holding up this bill? In holding up this bill, you're holding up a pay increase, and that's got to affect the the rank and file right across the board, right? Uh, it's yeah, the same no same issues now with what Turberville, this the guy that... Trump chose to run in Arizona, the football coaches, considered the, the dumbest the guy in, in the Congress. Yes. Yeah. And uh, he's holding up all of the uh, promotions in the military, including the commandant of the Marine Corps. They now don't have a commandant. So, and they're about to lose, I think, the Joint Chiefs and others are going to be vacant soon. So you won't have any top leaders in the Pentagon. And the same issue is there. Their pay raises are stalled. So this has got to be really making the rank and file angry. So I wonder whether that pressure is going to help in doing something about Turboville and these Republican culture warriors who foisted all of this nonsense on the NDAA. Well, basically, the Turboville thing is outside of the NDAA. Basically, any promotion for a military person has to be approved by the Senate. And normally it's just done, you know, Right, right away. Occasionally, there's some, you know, some debate, but it's not just the top leaders who you talked about. You're talking about 250 people, and basically, you know, you could have a lieutenant commander or you know a, a captain, and he or she is getting ready to move to the next duty station, but they can't go because <laughs> basically their promotion has not been approved. And so they got to stay where they are. And the families are wondering, what about the children in school and, and, and everything like that? So, yeah, this is going to hurt readiness. And, of course, one of the provisions in the bill is something that uh, uh, Senator Tupperville wanted, which is that you are not going to pay for abortion, pay for the travel for people who have to leave the state to get an abortion. 
Well, that's the same issue there that's in the uh, NDA from the Freedom Caucus. So at least well, the different issues, but the same issue of paying for that's right, yeah, for women to travel out of state if they're in a state that's banned abortion because of the the Dobbs decision, right? So yeah, basically. In other words, if the House bill were to pass and become law, Tupperville wouldn't have a problem anymore because it's in the NDAA. I mean, but that's not going to pass. You're never going to get through the Senate. And you just have to hope that McCarthy does what he did when we take took care of the debt limit. I don't know if you remember that. Basically, what he did in defense is he supported the amount that Biden had requested this $886 billion and basically stood up to a lot of people in his caucus who didn't want that or didn't want the aid to Ukraine and everything like that. So you got to hope that he says, okay, we had our chance. Now we got to deal with the Senate and, and basically let's pass a bill. You know, will the Senate do anything here? I find it hard to believe that the Senate is going to adopt any of these, uh, any of these proposals? Well, one of them is unbelievable, but not surprising. It came from one of the amendments that's in this bill that's now before the Senate next week. Colorado's Representative Lauren Bobert, her amendment was to block military schools from having what she called pornographic or radical gender ideology books in their libraries. So you've the book burners have now infiltrated the military. You know, the military is supposed to fight for democracy and freedom. And there you've got them, people harking back to the Nazis, foisting their ridiculous ideas. I mean, how many books in uh, military libraries are about pornography? I didn't uh, imagine there are too many of those on the shelves. No, they're not. But again, the definition of pornography, according to the people who passed that, is probably a lot different than the definition for normal people, you know, in terms of uh, uh, things like that. And yeah, as I mentioned earlier, in addition to trying to change what they teach the men and women in the military, they want to get to the Department of Dependent School System so that the children of military people don't learn, you know, history the way that it really is. I mean, I think we're a great country, but we've made mistakes. And we got to uh, acknowledge the mistakes that we made because if once we do, we'll be better off later on. And, and, you know, I remember dealing with the whole issue of gays when I was, you know, one of my responsibilities was manpower. And you had, you know, people saying all horrible things. If you let them in, you know, the military is going to fall apart. And you know who saved the day? Parry Goldwater. He said to me, I don't care if they're straight. Can they shoot straight? And I thought that really, you know, tells it all. That's what you're looking for here. I don't care what you're belief is uh, or anything like that. I want to know, are you going to be a good soldier, sailor, airman, Marines, or Coast Guard person? So just in closing then, Larry, just, you, you're confident that the Senate can strip out this madness? I thought that, that at least they had to kind of compromise. Are they going to compromise on anything? Well, again, I, I, I find it hard to believe <clears throat> that, <clears throat> that they will. I mean, there's a section in there about climate change or something. Maybe they'll uh, do that or basically set up some sort of uh, uh, procedure to evaluate the, uh, you know, the the courses that are being taught, this uh, diversity, equity and, and, and inclusion. I mean, that type of thing, maybe they'll they'll set up a you know, a study group, you know, to take a look. We do that a lot whenever we have a, a, a tough uh, problem. But I can't see them compromising on, you know, any of uh, any of these uh, major issues, because if you compromise too much, then you're going to lose Democratic votes, you know, back in the House to pass this. And I just hope, you know, maybe I'm an optimist, having done this a long time and, and seen uh, this uh, going. I can remember when I came in, the military didn't want the all-volunteer uh, uh, military. 
they were not helping us at all in, in getting this. Right. And because and they want they love the draft this way, you don't have to worry about, you know, recruiting and, and things like that. I mean, my office had to take it over and come up, you know, with the slogan, you know, it used to be was today's army wants to join you. No, that, you're not going to get the right people. We changed it to basically say that, you know, be all you can be. And we started getting a lot of good people. Right. Well, Lawrence Cobb, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Okay, thank you for having me, and take care. And again, I've been speaking with Lawrence Cobb, who's a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and a senior advisor to the Center of Defense Information. He served as Assistant Secretary of Defense and is the author of A New National Security Strategy in an Age of Terrorists, Tyrants, and Weapons of Mass Destruction. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Lane Wyndham, the Associate Director of Georgetown University's Kamanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor, and she's the co-director of Will Empower, that's Women Innovating Labor Leadership, and she's the author of Knocking on Labor's Door, Union Organizing in the 1970s and the Roots of a New Economic Divide. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lane Wyndham. Happy to be here with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And there is, of course, now a strike. Uh, I, for, for full disclosure, I'm a member of both the Screen Actors Guild and the Writers Guild, but we've been on strike at the Writers Guild for some time now. But now the actors, SAG-AFTRA, have joined in, and this is the first dual union strike in Hollywood since 1960. And it promises to be fairly serious in terms of shutting down the, you know, entertainment industry, which is pretty massive. It actually is one of America's top exports. So it's quite significant beyond just show business itself. And of course, most people think that people in show business are all rich and glamour and glitz, etc. But that's not the case. Most 99% are hardworking middle-class people trying to hang on. So what do you think is the significance of this, particularly given the powerful speech that the head of the Screen Actors Guild, Fran Drescher, made the other day that's gone viral? Yeah, so Fran Drescher in that speech, you know, she ends it, this powerful speech, by saying, we are labor, right? It's not just that the actors are supporting labor, we are labor. And I think that's, she really summed up what's happening, which is that the members of SAG-AFTRA are really taking a stand that I think is going to be important for America's working class during this, what many are calling hot labor summer. Uh, We've seen so much activism in this country, far more than we've seen in decades, Uh, organizing, striking, Um, And uh, I think that workers think they deserve more uh, and are are taking a broad stand. Well, do you think that this is going to basically energize other labor movements and other strikes across the board? I mean, we've, we've been following Amazon and Trader Joe's and a number of big companies that are hostile two unions, and there have been obviously attempts to unionize Amazon, for example. Do you think that there could be some sort of cross-fertilization, for the want of a better description, from... Oh, uh, yes, absolutely. I think that, you know, uh, working people definitely have a sense that there is a window of opportunity uh, following the pandemic when there's huge support for working people Um, I think that a lot of working people realize, um, you know, unemployment is low. Uh, You can um, get 
another job fairly easily. Um, yet, despite that, uh, we have not seen the kinds of uh, increases to help people deal with inflation that they need. And so they're asking themselves, gosh, if unemployment is low and there's so much public support and we still can't uh, get ahead, what do we need to do? Well, the answer is, you know, for many is collective action. And so, you know, we saw uh, graduate students and faculty at Rutgers struck recently. Uh, you've seen pilots who've been doing uh, quick day pickets. We saw journalists at Gannett walk out. Um, and of course, the Starbucks workers who've been organizing did a whole series of strikes uh, over the last over the last couple weeks. Um, and I think that we are likely to see more action and the actors and the writers are definitely helping lead a lot of that activity. And the fact that these actors are well-known uh, and are popular, do you think that they could lend their faces, if you will, to the broader labor struggles, not just uh, SAG-AFTRA and the Writers Guild, but beyond that to, you know, Starbucks and... Amazon and Trader Joe's, et cetera? I think that certainly the actors can um, support and, and, and lend, you know, their, uh, their credibility and their celebrity. However, what I think so interesting about the SAG after strike is that these actors aren't saying, oh, we'll support labor. They're saying we are labor, right? We recognize that we too are our workers are working people and that we are taking on these major corporations. Um, and so for instance, the, one of the big issues in the SAG after strike, you know, is this whole issue about um, AI and using the likeness. Well, that affects especially uh, people at the lower end of the pay scales, extras uh, who now can you know work on a set for maybe a month and make money as an extra during a during a filming well the studios want to be able to use just take someone's likeness and then pay them for one day well that's that is really going to impact the entire industry it's going to eliminate a, an entire workforce um, and so so what I see happening is that the members of SAGAFTRA are uh, exercising their own uh, power and uh, action as members of labor and are taking a stand within their industry. Well, the the idea that AI could replace not just extras, but actors themselves, that they could go in, you know, for a day's work, get scanned all over, get their voice recorded and copied, etc., and the, the movements, the personality, all of that stuff is scanned, then that's the only work they get. Then they like their likeness is used. So this is the same movement across industry where management would like to replace workers with robots. Uh, in this case, AI is, is, is pretty much the same thing. So <laughs> that's scary, one. And two, I can understand why... Uh, actors are afraid that they're going to be ripped off. And uh, I believe Robert Downey Jr. has copyrighted his voice as a kind of defensive mechanism so that Marvel doesn't uh, exploit him ad, infin ad infinitum. So this is a new frontier, is it not? It is. It is. You know, um, what we see is that over the years, uh, SAG-AFTRA and other workers' unions uh, have struck and taken a stand, not so much against technology, but over who reaps the gains of technology, right? And so right now, the corporate studios want to reap, you know, 99.9% .9 of the gains of this new technology. And what I see the actors and the writers saying is, you know, we we need to have a seat at the table. We need to be able to steer where this is going and have our voice heard. And we need to benefit from it. Um, you know, the technology, uh, there's always new technology. You know, the 1980 strike was about uh, uh, video cassettes or the 2000 commercial strike was about uh, residuals, especially on cable. So, 
technology is always an issue, but the question is who's going to benefit from it. Um, and, and definitely the writers and the actors are taking a very important, I think, historic stand on this issue. Well, let's play the clip of uh, the head of the Screen Actors Guild, Fran Drescher, known for the series The Nanny, making this uh, rousing speech when it became clear that they could no longer negotiate with the producers. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the largest dual union strike in the entertainment industry since 1960, with SAG-AFTRA joining the Writers Guild, who are already on strike. And so it came with great sadness that we came to this crossroads, but we had no choice. We are the victims here. We are being victimized by a very greedy entity. I am shocked by the way the people that we have been in business with are treating us. I cannot believe it, quite frankly, how far apart we are on so many things, how they plead poverty, that they're losing money left and right when giving hundreds of millions of dollars to their CEOs. It is disgusting. Shame on them. They stand on the wrong side of history at this very moment. We stand in solidarity, in unprecedented unity. Our union and our sister unions and the unions around the world are standing by us as well as other labor unions. Because at some point, the jig is up. You cannot keep being dwindled and marginalized and disrespected and dishonored. The entire business model has been changed by streaming, digital, AI. This is a moment of history that is a moment of truth. If we don't stand tall right now, we are all going to be in trouble. We are all going to be in jeopardy of being replaced by machines and big business. Who cares more about Wall Street than you and your family? Most of Americans don't have more than $500 in, a, in an emergency. This is a very big deal, and it weighed heavy on us. But at some point, you have to say, no, we're not going to take this anymore. You people are crazy. What are you doing? Why are you doing this? Privately, they all say, we're the center of the wheel. Everybody else tinkers around our artistry. But actions speak louder than words. And there was nothing there. It was insulting. So we came together in strength and solidarity and unity with the largest strike authorization vote in our union's history. And we made the hard decision that we tell you as we stand before you today, this is major, it's really serious, and it's going to impact every single person that is in labor. We are fortunate enough to be in a country right now that happens to be labor-friendly. And yet, we were facing opposition that was so labor-unfriendly, so tone-deaf to what we are saying. You cannot change the business model as much as it has changed and not expect the contract to change, too. We're not going to keep doing incremental changes on a contract that no longer honors what is happening right now with this business model that was foisted upon us. What are we doing? Moving around furniture on the Titanic? It's crazy. So the jig is up, AMPTP. We stand tall. You have to wake up and smell the coffee. 
We are labor and we stand tall and we demand respect and to be honored for our contribution. You share the wealth because you cannot exist without us. Thank you. And that was Fran Drescher, the head of the Screen Actors Guild a couple of days ago, announcing that the Screen Actors Guilds are joining the Writers Guild in the first dual union strike in Hollywood since 1960. So, Lane Wyndham, what's your sense then of what is going on here? Because Bob Iger and Fran Drescher have had an exchange, uh, which has been pretty incendiary. My understanding is, I mean, first of all, Fran Drescher mentioned how much money these CEOs are making while they're crying poverty. And he's, you know, he's doing, <laughs> he's doing pretty well, Iger. His compensation in 2022 was $24 million. At the same time, 7,000 Disney employees were laid off. And Disney itself, its stock is down 40%. But Iger is now insisting that Disney workers after the COVID pandemic, from working at home, they now have to go into the office. And this is happening across the board with a lot of companies because they get tax breaks if employees come to work. So what's happening in that regard, do you think, that people are being forced to come back even though they found that they're more productive working at home, you have less congestion and pollution from these hours-long commutes that people have, there are all kinds of benefits to working at home, but of course, the, but the downside is you have all this empty office space and they can no longer write it off. So is that a factor in, in this? You know, I think that uh, the terms of work following the pandemic have been uh, a factor not only for at Disney, uh, but in many companies. Uh, you know, we it's been an issue in, in many of the, the labor actions. I think that uh, workers recognized that uh, a lot of the work can be done on a far more fluid schedule than corporate America is used to. Um, you know, many of the, the, the executives prefer to have control over people's time. And I think that, that lots of working people are saying, hey, we uh, can make we can exercise autonomy and have control over our own time. So, yeah, I do. I certainly think that's an issue. You know, um, what but, 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 I... But what it's I, beyond that, Lane, though. It's not just your own time. It's your own life. It means you can spend more time with your kids. You can be at home. You don't have to waste hours and hours in commuting and, you know, sitting in traffic, polluting the planet. I mean, there's all kinds of benefits. Absolutely. So... Just back to the broader landscape then of labor itself, what was powerful about Fran Drescher's speech is that she's connecting with working people across the board and showing solidarity with all the other people that are, that have been fighting the fight on the front line, the Starbucks workers, et cetera, the Amazon workers. Do you have a sense since you study labor that this seems to be certainly an era where labor is flexing its muscles more. It's been down to, what, 7% of the private workforce now. And so it's been on a downward trajectory. How do you see it in a broader historical context? Is there a resurgence going on here? I think that we are definitely living through a, a new surge of worker activism and organizing following the pandemic. Um, you know, there's enormous support for workers and their unions. The most recent Gallup polling shows that 71% of the public uh, has a positive approval of unions. That's the highest it's been since 1965. And so, you know, the work, the actors who are striking um, right now uh, are uh, enjoying that level of public support. And I think that the corporate executives are maybe living in the past, they think that it's like things were in the 2000 commercial strike. But in fact, there's enormous support right now for workers. I think that after the pandemic, especially people really rethought their relationship to work and working people. And um, so I think that the actors 
have public opinion behind them. So when Fran Drescher refers to Walt Disney CEO Bob Iger as being like a land baron of a medieval time, uh, pointing out the massive wealth disparity in Hollywood, which of course reflects the massive wealth disparity across the country. I don't know whether you can shame billionaires and get them to, you know, recognize that there's something wrong with, you know, you can't sail two yachts at the same time. At a certain point, why do you need all this extra money? And clearly, over the decades, they've cut the taxes on the very wealthy uh, to the point where there aren't sufficient revenues to to run the government. And that seems to be the the Republican Party's main priority is to take care of the super wealthy. And now we've seen how the super wealthy have essentially captured the Supreme Court uh, with, the, with these hirelings like uh, Alito and Thomas doing their bidding. So this is the face of America today. Do you think that this kind of Mary Antoinette moment is upon us and that somehow the public can wake up as a sleeping giant? Uh, and I, as I say, I don't know that you can shame these people, but maybe you can force them to pay their fair share of taxes. Yeah, yeah. I think we're at a pivot point. Um, I think it's really, it started in 2013 after Occupy, and it uh, really took off following the pandemic. We are in a different era than we were uh, in the late 20th century and the turn of the century. Uh, and the I believe that... Um, the corporations who are, whether that be Disney or Starbucks or Amazon, are uh, ultimately depend on the public. They depend on customers. And I think they are underestimating the level of support for working people at this moment. So just in closing then, Lane, this could be a long strike, uh, the Writers Guild and Actors Strike. So do you think the energy and enthusiasm is going to be there over the long haul? Because this is like a military campaign, you know, (laughs) you've got to be in it for the long haul. Yeah, yes, that's absolutely right. I do think that this could uh, this could drag on. Uh, I hope it doesn't, but it may. It certainly may. Um, And uh, yeah, so the you know, the the actors and the writers are are going to need broad support. You're going to need to see solidarity um, across various kinds of, of workers and unions going into this. Um, And, you know, I think that uh, we'll see where, where it goes. The last strike, the last big strike that SAG-AFTRA had was in uh, 2000, and it went on for six months. And I, I think that's not unreasonable to think that this one could go that long. Well, Lane Wyndham, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Lane Wyndham, who's the Associate Director of the Georgetown University's Kamanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor, and the Co-Director of Will Empower, that's Women Innovating Labor Leadership, and she's the author of Knocking on Labor's Door, Union Organizing in the 1970s, and the Roots of a New Economic Divide. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived 
Disappear.